The Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this Wednesday, March 1st. Wow, what happened to February? March 1st edition. This, wow, time is just flying by in 2017, isn't it? Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to listen to the program today. I want to encourage everyone, if you did not hear me on Doug and Joe Hagman on Monday night, that is in the archives for Tuesday. We were having a lot of issues, but guess what? I can finally upload media now. So now we're just working on the app. We're trying to get that synchronized because we don't know if it was WordPress, the new updates, or when I moved my entire website over from the host company. We're not sure where all these glitches came from, but we were having a whole heck of a lot of glitches, but we're getting them slowly resolved. So I do want to thank you for being patient while I worked through all these issues in the last 10 days since the site was moved. You know, bear with me and we'll get that app up and running. Right now, my understanding is when you pull open the app, it's just a blank screen and it has something apparently to do with this WordPress. So, you know, we're getting all this stuff resolved. But you know what? It's a fantastic app. And when it is up and running, make sure you do get it. It's a great little instant click app. You just hit a button and you pull it open and listen to the show. It's a great, convenient way for the listener to catch up on all the latest broadcasts. Well, speaking of broadcasts, I want to jump right into the show. I got so much feedback on this series, Israel, the Kabbalah, and the Antichrist, Good and bad, by the way. <laughs> Wasn't all good, trust me. But we did a question and answer part one. And John Trell is back with me to do the part two. These are questions you asked. So I'm really looking forward to this. John Terrell, welcome back to the program, sir. It is a pleasure to have you back on. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Well, we're going to jump into the Q&A, John. You have the questions there. I'm just pretty much going to hand you the mic, and I'll jump in whenever you want me to. All right. But praise the Lord. Here's the first question for today. Hey, Sheila, thank you for sharing with Pastor Terrell about some Christians who don't accept the Jewish people in Israel today. I have a different view, but I respect your view. Uh, By the way, I grew up in a Reformed church that taught Anglo-Israelism, which obviously rejected the nation-state of Israel. Later, I began to write a research paper on this topic and the importance of it for the church. I committed to God and asked him to show me the truth of the matter, wherever the truth took me. Well, guess where the Holy Spirit led me? I learned that Anglo-Israelism is a false doctrine, but I threw the baby out with a bathwater. Now, because of this teaching, you have given me pause, and I will set about researching this for myself to see if this is true. So, what this lady here is talking about, this is from Laura, uh, she's talking about the identity movement. And um, I want to take some time here and share with you what the identity movement is. The identity movement started back in the mid-1800s, and uh, it's one of these things that were cooked up again by the Illuminati and uh, enticed people. And the story goes like this. This is their teaching. When the ten northern tribes were kicked out, when God kicked them out of Israel, of the land, about 700 and 
50 in that neighborhood before Christ, uh, they all went up into Europe. And so they say, for example, Denmark uh, is a tribe of Dan, and then you had the Anglo-Saxons, so they went to Germany, they went over to uh, England, and so the 10 northern tribes are in Europe. The truth is that when they were taken out of the land, the Assyrians placed them in different parts of their empire, and uh, then they put other people into the land of Israel. So they did similar to what the Soviet Union did when it took people out of one area, replaced them in another to control it. Now, it is absolutely impossible to say that the 10 northern tribes went into Europe and became white European, Anglo-Saxons. So the people from Saxony, the Germany, and the Scandinavian countries, and England, they are the true Israelites. Now, they also say this, that only Anglo-Saxons, only white people can be saved. So the identity movement came over here to the United States, and of course he got a good uh, solid foundation here. Now we have this guy, Duke, uh, that is, um, I think is from Alabama, and uh, he is one of the leaders in this identity movement. So they simply say this, only white people can be saved. If you are black, Mexican, if you are mixed, whatever it is, forget it. You cannot be saved. Only white people can be saved. And Ku Klux Klan, which is also an offshoot of Freemasonry, is part of this, so there is in this area of group of people, there's a number of different organizations. You have, for example, the Aryan Nation, that is a very strong Nazi organization, but there are others, and this is what they're doing. Of course, it is not true, it is false, and so um, there's nothing to the identity movement, just another sideline which simply means that people get sidetracked, they get involved in this, and they lose track of Jesus, and they become political, they become fanatic, they become haters of other people. So that's the identity movement or Anglo-Israelism. And so that's a question here we had from Laura. Now, the next question here is, I was wondering if the Mormon church doctrine was influenced by the Kabbalah. And this question was sent in by Mary. And the answer is very much so. Now, Joseph Smith, prior to starting his church, was a Freemason. I, we do not know how many degrees he had, what degree he was, and so on. But if you know about Freemasonic rituals, uh, how they do things, and if you know about the Mormons, they are identical. So if a Mormon joins a Freemasonic lodge, he's going to be shocked and say, wow, they're doing what we do in a Mormon church. 
So the Mormon church is very, very much influenced by the Freemasonry. And of course, Freemasonry is built upon the Kabbalah. Let me go back to about 1700. When Adam Weishaupt organized the Illuminati, there were Freemasonic lodges in different parts of the world. They were not Kabbalistic, they were not Luciferian, but they were basically started out as a some kind of a fraternal organization or like you have a labor union. And so they simply spread out from England and then into the United States. So we have, for example, George Washington was a Freemason. Now, the sad thing is this, that what Adam Weishaupt did, he simply said this, we're going to hijack the Freemasons. And by doing that, we will have a network. So in other words, he was a, like a parasite. The Freemasons also had lodges all over England, many places in the United States. And they were basically doing civic work. The Illuminati came in, took these lodges over, and converted them to Kabbalistic Freemasonry with all the witchcraft and Satanism and everything else. In the 28th degree of the Scottish Rite, you find this, and this is, was given to us by Albert Pike in his book, Morons of Dogma, where he simply said that up to this point, we have intentionally misled you. And now we're going to tell you the real truth. The real truth is we worship Lucifer. And that's a shock for people coming up to the 28th degree where they are initiated, but that have become too far for them to get out. The Mormon church has, but you do a temple service. And if you're not a Mormon, you might understand what a temple service is. The Mormons believe, and this is, you know, another screwball theology, that if a Mormon is baptizing himself for a dead relative, that relative will be brought out of what they call a prison. He will be given a Book of Mormon and given a chance to accept the Mormon doctrine and the Mormon church. And if he does that, he's moved from level three to level two. Level three is slavery. Level two is management. And of course, level one, you are gods in a Mormon church. The ritual now, when you go into the temple, is that you got to swear that uh, you will not reveal any of the secrets. And they have a death oath, where they simply say, you know, that if I reveal this, uh, my bowels will fall out, I will rot, uh, I should be killed. It's a death oath. And it's exactly the same type of death oath you have in Freemasonry. And the same death oath you have in Skull and Bones, which is another organization. And, of course, in the Illuminati, they have that also. So the Mormon church is very, very much influenced by the Kabbalah. In this way, they have the rituals, they have the oath, and also the teaching that a woman in the Mormon church has no value. A woman, according to Joseph Smith, later on Brigham Young, and their teaching is here to bear children, to give sex to her husband, to clean the house, 
to take care of things. That's her duty. Now, if a Mormon guy pays his tithe, he marries this woman, and they're married in the temple, he will then, if he does everything right, he will become a god in the next life. And he will be given his own solar system, and um, now he will have the right to resurrect his wife. If he doesn't like his wife that he had here on earth, he simply will not resurrect her, and she will simply sleep on or she would cease to exist. So a woman is totally dependent upon that her husband is pleased with her or she has no eternal future. That's Mormon doctrine. And another thing that they, they do when I found this out when I lived in Salt Lake City and talked to some people is that the, the, the women, when they come to the temple to get married, are shocked because what they do is this, that they come to the temple, they're told to go into their room, they have to take their clothes off, and they are put in some kind of a robe. They then are laid up on like an examining table, like you have in a doctor's office. And then you have two or three temple workers, both men and women, will examine and they will get into her sexual organ to make sure she is a virgin. If she's not a virgin, then you cannot marry in the temple. They also then anoint her body parts and so on with oil. Note, a Mormon woman does not know that when she comes in. And I talked to some of them, and they are traumatized when this happened. If they have been examined, and they simply are virgins, they get their wedding gar garments, and then they go ahead and they have a wedding in a chapel in that particular temple, wherever the temple is located. So that's the Mormon church very much influenced by the Kabbalah and Freemasonry. Now we go to the next question. I have a couple of questions for your program on the Kabbalah, etc. First question, how will the region and other parts of the world be affected if President Trump moves the United States Embassy to Jerusalem? So let's start with that question. Jerusalem, you know, to understand that, let me go back a few hundred years. The land of Palestine was occupied and ruled by the Ottoman Empire, which is what today is called Turkey. And uh, Jerusalem, they had built uh, a uh, mosque there, and they built it on the Temple Mount, because in the Quran, they recognize Moses, they recognize uh, the Torah, and uh, they even recognize Jesus as a teacher but not as a Messiah. And so the Temple Mount, holy for the Muslims, they built there a temple. Now, as time went on, we then had, we had the Crusades from about 1000 to 1100 AD, where different kings from England, King Lionheart and so on, they sent down crusaders to try to take back the Holy Land. And they were successful and then they lost it. So. Palestine, or the Holy Land, Israel, the Promised Land, has been occupied by the Ottoman Empire since about 1400. And when World War I ended, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, had lined up with Germany, and so they were defeated, and the Ottoman Empire was simply carved up 
And that's how you got the different nations. So uh, Syria, Palestine, and Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, they did not exist prior to 1920. They were simply made by the Western powers. The Western powers here was France and England, which was done in 19, between 1918 and 1920. So they declared that Jerusalem is an open city, and it is the headquarters for the Jews, it's for the Muslims, and for the Christians. So Jerusalem was declared a three- or triune city, so to say, that no one really could control. The British controlled it, but each religion there, the Jews had their section, the Islam Muslim had their section, and the Christian had their section. section. At the 1948 war, then the Jews kicked out and they took control of most of Palestine, except they did not get control of the eastern part of Jerusalem. So from 1948 to 1967, Jerusalem divided. One part was controlled by Jordan, and the other half was controlled by Israel. 1967, Israel took the whole thing. Now, they had to comply with the international rules and regulations. So they could not kick out the Muslims. They could not kick out the Christians. So little by little, they have simply said, well, Jerusalem is our capital. The Palestinians said Jerusalem is our capital. The international community, in order to honor the setup that was done in 1920, have not put any embassies in Jerusalem. They have them in Tel Aviv, which is a large city uh, on the Mediterranean shore. And so we've had a status quo since 1948, no embassies in Jerusalem. If President Trump, as he said, he will move the embassy to Jerusalem, we have, the United States has a huge consulate. I mean, it is not just a little office building. There is an embassy in Jerusalem. It's called a consulate. And the real embassy is in Tel Aviv. But if they move it and they simply remove the, the sign from Tel Aviv, hang it in Jerusalem and say, the American embassy, there's going to be an uproar. Because this is going to cause the Muslim to say, we don't accept this. Jerusalem's supposed to be an open city and no one can claim it. So this is a flashpoint that is going to continue. Once President Trump was in power and he was inaugurated, he began to see, he began to get intelligence reports, and he got stuff to read that he did not have before as a candidate. And he has backed off on his proposal to move the embassy, and he simply says, well, we're going to hold off on that for the time being. In other words, he knows this. If I do that... I could start a tremendous upheaval in the Middle East. So he has to be pragmatic. They want to fight ISIS. We have problems in Iraq. We got problems in Syria. And we got problems in Egypt, in Sinai. So he really wants to solve those problems. He wants to make peace between the Jews and the, and the Palestinians. And if he moves the embassy 
It's going to be a red herring right in front of the Palestinians. They are going to go ballistic. So I believe that the embassy is not going to be moved very fast. He might not do it. It all depends upon, because he got problems with Mexico. Uh, President Trump got problems with Russia. We got problems with China. So there's plenty of problems right now without causing another major upheaval. And I think that President Trump is wise enough to realize, yeah, I would like to do this for the Jews, but if I do that, it's going to blow up in my face. The second question this lady, uh, this uh, person had, this is actually from Jesse. How and where does the Prime Minister Netanyahu fit into all this? I mean, is he from one of the tribes? What does he believe? Where does he stand? God bless in your work. Sincerely in God's love and grace. And this is from Jesse. Well, Netanyahu was born in Israel. Now, his father was born in Poland. And uh, I've been preaching for the last few weeks or so about Khazar Jews and so on. So I noticed this as I went in and researched this, that Netanyahu has powerfully, very strongly said this, I am a Sephardic Jew, which means he said, I am from Spain. My answer comes from Spain. I am not a Khazar. Because most of the leadership in Israel are Khazar Jews, which is another topic that I'm looking into right now. But they are simply Gentiles converted to Judaism. So his father was born in Poland. And um, so most likely he, and then also the family from Poland, they lived up in Lithuania, which was a very strong community of Khazar Jews. Uh, particularly we have when Sabbatai Siva came out in 1600, uh, a lot of support came from just Lithuania, from Wilnius, uh, the capital. So as far as Netanyahu goes, I don't know if he's one of the tribes. I think he's mixed. I don't think he's a pure descendant of Abraham. Furthermore, Netanyahu's parents were secular Jews. Now, you find this if you look it up in Wikipedia and so on. And secular Jews means that they did not really believe in God. And most Jewish leaders and a lot of people in Israel do not believe in God. They do not believe in the Old Testament. They simply believe in the land. They believe in the religion of Judaism, which is a bunch of Talmudic Kabbalistic rituals. So... Netanyahu came from a family that are, were secular Jews. They did not believe in God. And Netanyahu himself has not, to my knowledge, said who he is. If he is a true Old Testament Jew that adhered to the Old Testament or not. So that will finish that particular question. Now, we go to the next one. And this is from Marnie and Ohad. This John Fiedler book, The Origins of the Arab-Israel Wars, Fourth edition by Richie Ovendale, worth purchasing. I definitely plan on getting John's book and a Dove magazine, but I'm wondering, is this book, if it has good info into it? Well, I never read the book, The Origins of the Arab-Israeli Wars, so I would simply research to find out who is Richie Ovendale. 
And I found out that this guy was born in South Africa, in Pretoria. And um, he later on went to England and uh, got educated there and became a historian. And he wrote this book. I haven't read a book. So then I said, well, let me find out what the book is all about. And here's how you do when you do research like that. You look on reviews of the book. And because a person is identified by your enemies. Let me repeat that. A Christian or a person is always identified by your enemies. So who, who are his enemies? Well, he is slaughtered, slandered by the Jewish community and the Jewish leadership. And people that are part of the world government, on the leftist, socialist, and so on, they all lambast this guy. Well, if these guys that I know what I stand for, if they hate this book, I would say the book is probably pretty good. And so I would say to these people, I would say it's worth to purchase the book. So would you, whatever you're looking for, look who the enemies are of the person. And then you can make a decision. Oh, yeah, I know what this person stands. So that is fine. And um, so that's a story. That's a question here from Marnie and Chad. They also had a PS. When someone asked me if I stand with Israel, my answer is yes. But I explain it for the individual Jew as for any human life, not necessarily for the government of Israel. And I believe corruption infiltrates all government forms, no matter the nationality. Am I wrong in my perception? How do you answer that question when asked? This is an extremely good question and very, very important. And I'm going to spend a few minutes on that. Let's talk about covenants. And I'm going to just kind of go through this pretty fast. In the Old Testament, we have a number of covenants. Most Christians do not know this. They have never researched it. And so they simply believe whatever the Christian Zionists are telling them. Covenant number one was made between God and Adam. You find it in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. Covenant Number one is also known as the covenant of death. And if you haven't understood the covenant of death, you will not understand your salvation. Because in the New Testament, it talks about, you know, that we are no longer under the law. We have been redeemed from the law. When Paul writes about this, he's talking about the law of death. He's not talking about the laws of Moses because they did not have the death clause in them. So the law of death, no man could satisfy that. We were all condemned to die physically and then go to hell. And that is what Jesus paid for, our sins. So we are set free from the law of death. The second covenant that was done was between God and Noah. And you find this in the book of Genesis, I'm not going to look it up right now because of time crunch. And in this covenant, God simply said this, that I will make a covenant. I will never again flood the whole earth. There will never be another universal earth. And 
as a token, the rainbow will be the sign of this covenant. That's a covenant with Noah. And that is a perpetual covenant, which means it will stand until Jesus comes back. So that's covenant number two. Covenant number three was with Abraham. When God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I will bless you. I will curse those, they curse you and so on. That was a personal covenant with Abraham does not apply to 12 tribes. It was a personal covenant. Then the next covenant was with Isaac, when God confirmed the covenant he had with Abraham. And then it was confirmed again to Jacob, when Jacob had this confirmed that the covenant with Abraham still stood. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had personal covenants had nothing to do with a nation of Israel or the people of Israel. None. And this is what the Christian Zionists are playing fast foot here with people, and they're simply um, making a mess out of it and leading people into false doctrine. So we simply do not have that. The covenant now that is known as the first covenant was made between God and Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. It took place after the exodus out of Egypt in the Sinai Desert, when God simply made a covenant with the 12 tribes of Israel. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the, on the covenant itself, he sprinkled it on the people, he sprinkled it on the, on the altar, and that was the covenant, the first covenant that we have in the Old Testament. The first covenant now does not exist any longer. And this is where now it is getting into very troubled territory because the Jews are going to scream anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic. Let me read quickly here from Hebrews chapter 8, and we pick it up here in verse number 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then shall no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant, that I made with their fathers in a day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Let's slow down now and make a note here now. When Paul wrote Hebrews, he simply said, Now, this covenant, which is the second covenant now, I will make with the house of Israel. Israel is made with the 12 tribes. It's a second covenant. The first covenant was made between God and the people of Israel. The second covenant is made between God the Father and God the Son. It was made for Israel. And we read on. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind. I write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, they shall be to me a people. They shall not teach, 
every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquity will I remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant is made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. So the covenant that God had with the 12 tribes of Israel ceased to exist the moment Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And let me just go slow here a little bit and explain this to you now. When Jesus came to live on this earth, his mother gave him a body. The woman carries the egg. The egg contains flesh and bones. The man's sperm contains the blood. Man gives the blood. The woman gives the physical body. Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit. Mary was a virgin. And the Holy Ghost is the one that made her pregnant. He gave the body sinless blood. Now, when Jesus came to this earth and he was he put himself into this new cell that had been conceived in Mary. He did not have a soul. Jesus does not need a soul. Soul is man made for made for bad. But Jesus is complete. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was inserted himself into this body. And so when he grew older, he simply walked around and he had a body that was human for Mary, but the blood was sinless. The Bible said Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So when Jesus was taken first to Pilate and he was whipped 39 lashes, the Bible says by his strap we are healed. When he was crucified, it was his body that was crucified, and Jesus had to stay in that body for three hours, from noon to 3 p.m., and that was done on a Wednesday, not a Friday. That's another lie from the devil. So Jesus' body was a sacrifice, but Jesus himself did not die. Jesus cannot die. He's God. And Jesus went to paradise. He stayed three days and three nights in paradise. He went over to hell. He preached to the people there in captivity that died and went to hell, telling them, I'm the Messiah. I pay for your sins. But since you didn't accept me as the Messiah when you lived on earth, as a future Messiah, you are going to go to the lake of fire. When Jesus came back, Jesus came up from paradise. His body had been resurrected have been totally refurbished and he entered into that body which was now a resurrected physical body when mary magdalene came to him at the grave when she she went to the grave and he showed her up to her she wanted to touch him and he said do not touch me i haven't been to my father yet but a few days later he told the disciples touch me look at my hands see the nail prints See the wound in my side and so on. What happened? But in Hebrews chapter 9, it says that Jesus, after the resurrection, gathered up the blood that had been spilled on Calvary, took it up to heaven, presented it in the temple in heaven, 
and said, Father, this is my blood. I shed it. I paid for the sins. And the father said, accepted, paid in full. At that moment, the first covenant ceased to exist. And we do not have a new covenant. We have a new covenant. The old one is done away with. So, in the book of Acts, I want to read a verse here that would, would settle this for us here. And that is from Acts chapter 4. And you pick it up here in verse number 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? These were the Jewish leaders, the high priests and the scribes and so on. Then Peter, Philip, and Holy Ghost said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of your builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in the other, for there is none other name under heaven given among them, men, whereby we must be saved. So Paul, Peter has said, the name of Jesus is the only name given by which people can be saved. And in John chapter 14, verse number 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So what do we tell our Jewish friends? Here's what we tell them. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He came to this earth. He paid for our sins on the cross. He was resurrected. And a second covenant came into being. And some of you might say, well, who made that covenant? Let me just quickly go here to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to read here from verse number 18. And all things are of God, which reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world himself, not imputing a trespass unto them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. As I said before, the first covenant between God and the twelve tribes of Israel, God and man. Man could not hold up his bargain. The second covenant is between God the Father and God the Son. God himself paid for the sins of you and me, for the entire human race. That means that people that are of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jews, Benjamin, whatever they are, there is no other covenant for them. There is no other plan for them. And they have to come through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, who had a Jewish body 
given to him by his mother Mary, who was of the tribe of Judah and in lineage with King David. That's where she came from. So you simply say this to Jewish people. Well, you know what? I cannot really bless the state of Israel because God did not create the state of Israel as we have it today. It's created by people, the Zionists themselves, through deception, wars, and terror, has simply carved out the land of Palestine and said, this is Israel. And they are claiming we have a covenant with God. And to be truthful now, they don't have a covenant with God. There's also a land covenant that I did not talk about here. And the land covenant was given to Abraham and repeated to his son, Isaac, and to Jacob. And the land covenant was a conditional one. As long as they obeyed, and the land covenant ceased to exist about 586 B.C., when Judah and Benjamin were thrown out of Judea, taken to Babylon, and that day the land covenant ceased to exist. Will it come back? Yes, in the thousand-year kingdom it will come back. It will be resurrected by God the Father himself. And let me very quickly uh, talk about that, which is from uh, the book of Ezekiel. We're going to go to chapter 37. Let me read to you. This is from Ezekiel chapter 37. I'll read from verse number 21. And say unto them, This is the Lord God. Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, where they be gone. And will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. God said, I will bring them in. He didn't say, I will make it possible for them to come back. And I will make them one nation in a land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them. And they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with the idols. Nor with the detestable things. Nobody know the transgressions, but I would save them out of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall I be my people and I will be their God. Those Jews that are surviving during the time of the Antichrist, will God will give them the gift of repentance. He will save them and clean them. A remnant of Jews at the end of tribulation and the end of the reign of the Antichrist will be gathered up by God himself and brought back to the land of Palestine. This will happen when Jesus has come back, the Antichrist, the false prophet, in the lake of fire, and now we go into the thousand-year kingdom. Verse 24, And David my servant shall be king over them. Now David is dead. I mean, he's in heaven, but his body's dead. He's been dead for about 3,000 years. King David is going to be resurrected. And God said here that King David, not Solomon, not Saul, but King David, is going to reign over the new Israel. He's going to reign out of Jerusalem and the t people of Israel has been gathered back 
and they will get their land back at the thousand-year kingdom. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. They shall call, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgment and observe my statutes and do them. Does Israel do that today? Far from it. It has the largest homosexual community in the world. They have the largest amount of prostitutes per capita in Tel Aviv and other places. It's a horrible place. And then we read in verse 25, And they shall dwell on the land that I gave unto Jacob my servant, when your fathers had dwelt. They shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Notice now, God did not say, I'm going to put a temple in Jerusalem. He said a sanctuary, a place of worship. The Jews today are waiting for the temple to be built. They can start sacrificing. God said it's not going to be a sacrifice. It's going to be a sanctuary, a place of worship, because Jesus was the last sacrifice. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, will sanctify Israel, where my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. So this is a big, fat lie. When Israel was founded, the political status was found in 1948. It was founded by men. God is going to do it. But at the end of the reign of the Antichrist. So what do I tell people? I simply said, I cannot bless the state of Israel, and I'm not doing it. Now, I don't want to see them suffer. I don't want to see terrorists. I don't want to see the Palestinians blow them up or, or hurt them. I don't want to see war in the Middle East. I pray for Jews. I pray for Palestinians. All of them need to get saved. So there it is. This first covenant, gone. Second covenant in force. And by the way, isn't it amazing that when the apostles started the churches, they didn't set up synagogues. The church has a total different leadership than a synagogue. A synagogue has a rabbi, which means a teacher. A church has a bishop or a pastor. It has elders. It has deacons and deaconesses. It has membership. We have water baptism. We have the communion. We have foot washing. So if you look at the book of Acts, you will find that Christians... By the way, the apostles were all Jewish. The early church was Jewish. They didn't stay in the synagogues. They left the synagogue system. They created a new system, the church, with a whole new structure, which is found in the New Testament. So here we are, and this is what I've been saying and will say many times. The Jews, since they do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, they are not going to accept the New Testament. Therefore, they only accept the Old Testament. They have the Talmud. They have the Kabbalah. And they are simply saying, we still believe that the covenant that God made 
where the 12 tribes of Israel still stands. You can't reason with them. That's what I believe. Only if a Jew is saved and is born again, he will say, yes, I accept the New Testament. I'm under the New Covenant, and the First Covenant is not there. So do I bless the state of Israel? No. Do I bless Jewish people? Yes. I'll bless Jewish people. I'll bless Polish people. I'll bless Australian people. I'll bless anyone. Because all people can be saved. And Jesus wants to save all people. Now I'm down to my last question here. And this is from Dave from Texas. He said this. I've heard that Pope Francis and all the Jesuits are actually Nazi Talmudists. Is this true? And the answer is yes. Now, the Jesuits were founded by a Jew that had converted to the Catholic faith. And I don't have time to really go deep into this, but after Sabbatai Sevi had come on the scene in 1666, proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, and later on, he committed apostasy and converted to Islam. Their teaching in the Kabbalistic system is that if you want to serve God to the greatest, convert, get out of Judaism, and convert to the religion of the land. That's what they teach. So, people that lived in Poland became Catholics. People lived in northern Germany became Lutherans. And Karl Marx was one of those Lutheran Jews. We had Disraeli, prime minister in England. He didn't, he didn't really convert to Christianity. And so we had people converted to any religion around it, Muslims, big time. So we now have this guy that started the Jesuit order. He was a Kabbalistic Jew. He was also part and working with Adam Weishaupt and Emma Rothschild, Emma Manchin, which became Rothschild, and also with um, J Jacob Frank. So the Jesuits is set up, and their order is a Kabbalistic order. It is very satanic, very powerful. And matter of fact, in the Catholic circles, the Jesuit head is called the Black Pope. So the Catholic Church has had problems for a long time. And the question is now, how does the church, the Catholic Church, and the Jews fit together? Well, I don't have time on this program here to go into too many details. But I can say this, that the Catholic Church in the last 200 years have had two Jewish popes. These are Jews that converted to Catholic faith, but inwardly were Kabbalistic Jew. And the Catholic Church is a very, very corrupt institution. And um, in 1982, there was a scandal that broke in Rome. And I want to talk briefly about the lodge. This is the Masonic lodge called the P2 Lodge. And it is headquartered in Rome, in Italy. It's controlling the Vatican. Now, the Vatican has its own bank, and there's been a lot of scandals, and in the 1980s, 
we had a gen not a gentleman, but a man named Robert Calvi, Roberto Calvi, and uh, he was one of the top leaders of the Freemasons, and uh, he was also a banker that did a lot of laundering, and so the Vatican Bank is used by the world government to push money through, take money out in order to wash their transactions. Everything broke loose about 1981, and Roberto Calvi was murdered in London. And what they do is this. When you have a free Masonic execution, they want to make sure that the members know that this is a free Masonic execution. So what I did was they took him to London. They hung him at a bridge that is called the Friars Bridge, which is a Masonic name. And they found him hanging under the Masonic bridge called the Friars Bridge in London. That put fear into all members in the, in the Freemasonry circles around the world. What they simply realized, hey, we got to toe the line or we will be done in. So the Bible says in Revelation that we will have, this is in Revelation chapter 13, that there's going to be an Antichrist, and we do know he's going to be Jewish, he's going to be a homosexual, and he's going to be a Kabbalist, he's going to worship Lucifer. Um, it says right here in Revelation 13, he will worship Satan, and Satan will give him power. But then it will be another beast in verse 11 on chapter 13, coming upon the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. In other words, he's going to be a religious man, but he speaks as the devil. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, causing the earth of them which dwell in to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So, the notion that the Pope is going to be the Antichrist is not true. It does not fit Scripture. The Catholic Church is going to be one of the churches going to be put together as a world church. It's going to be a world federation churches. And if you follow history for the last 25, 30 years, the Catholic Church, the popes have been in dialogue with Buddhists. They've been in dialogue with the Muslims. They've been in dialogue with the Pentecostals in the United States. They've been in dialogue with the Lutherans in Europe. They are simply working to find the common ground where they simply can come together as a synchronism, where they become one world church. And there's going to be a man that is going to be the leader of that church that will be called the false prophet. I think that we can look upon, because the Kabbalistic Jews did this, if you look upon Sabbatai Sevi and Nathan of Gaza, which was his prophet, you'll find that both men were Kabbalistic Jews. Both men were working together. And Nathan projected worship to a Sabbatai, explained Sabbatai's behavior. And Nathan had power to heal. They could lay hands on people. They were slain in the spirit. It was all kind of charismatic manifestation by Nathan. And I think we're going to see something similar where we're going to have the Antichrist ruling out of Jerusalem 
and we're going to have a false prophet, and he's most likely going to be in Jerusalem because that's where the temple is going to be. He's going to lead them in worship from that temple. The Catholic Church will be simply merged with these other things, but the Pope is not going to be a central leader. Uh, right now, they are used to corrupt and destroy the faith of Christians and trying to get everybody to merge together into one religion. So I think that will answer this question here about the Pope and how they fit into this. So that was on Dave from Texas. So those are my questions, and I answer them, Sheila. Wow. Well, those are were incredible questions. Thank you for sending in the questions, people. And John, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come on the program and answer these questions. And what I would like to do, John, I'd like to invite you to a future show where we will invite live callers, and they can ask any remaining questions that they have. We'll just spend an hour uh, taking calls on the show, and people can ask any questions that are still remaining after they have listened to part one and two, the questions. If you didn't hear part one of Question and Answer with John Terrell on this series, Israel, the Kabbalah, and the Antichrist, you want to be doing that for sure. John, thank you so much for your time incoming on the program, and we're looking forward to having you back on real soon. Thank you very much, and may God bless you. Thanks, John. Folks, that was John Terrell from EAEC.org. His information is there on the bio. European American Evangelistic Crusades. Again, EAEC.org. I want to thank you so much for tuning into the broadcast today and being patient while I've moved the entire website to a brand new host company. Hopefully, now that we've worked out all this, we won't have to worry about it going down a great new host with great new features and lots more security. So hopefully there's not as many of these incredible issues. I am being told just now, breaking, that my web team has fixed the app. And I want to make sure it is fixed. So do go to the Weekend Vigilante app. How do you do that? Well, if you have an Android or a smartphone, you can just go download it. Just look up Weekend Vigilante. I was told it comes up as Sheila Zelinsky too. I'm not sure if that's the case. I don't personally have an Android. So if you're an Android listener out there or you're an iPhone listener, please do see if it is working. I'm asking you to do that. Let me know if the app is working. We're also updating a few key features on that app that'll make it the number one app out there. I guarantee it. It'll make it the, the best app out there that you can get. Tomorrow on the show... You're not going to want to miss. It is. Monty Mulkey is coming on with his wife. It is the first time I've had him on, and I have been chomping at the bit to have him on for years. Cannot wait. I thank you so much for tuning into the program. And don't forget to get me your power prayer testimony. I want to see that in my email. That's going to be an important show, so please do email me in the subject line, Power Prayers Testimony. See you tomorrow. Good night and God bless you.